You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. My mother was not real. She was an early dream, a hope. She was a place, snowy like here and cold, a wooden house on a hill above a river. An overcast day, the old white paint of the buildings made brighter somehow by the trapped light, and I was coming home from school. Ten years old, walking by myself, walking through dirty patches of snow in the yard, walking up to the narrow porch. I can't remember how my thoughts went then. Can't remember who I was or what I felt like. All of that is gone, erased. I opened our front door and found my mother hanging from the rafters. I'm sorry, I said, and I stepped back and closed the door. I was outside on the porch again. You said that, Rhoda asked. You said you were sorry? Yes. Oh, Mom. It was long ago, Irene said, and it was something I couldn't see even at the time, so I can't see it now. I don't know what she looked like hanging there. I don't remember any of it, only that it was. Rhoda scooted closer on the couch and put her arm around her mother, pulled her close. They both looked at the fire. A metal screen in front, small hexagons, and the longer Rhoda looked, the more these hexagons seemed like the back wall of the fireplace, made golden by flame, as if the back wall, black with soot, could be revealed or transmuted by fire. Then her eyes would shift, and it would be only a screen again. I wish I had known her, Rhoda said. Me too, Irene said. She patted Rhoda's knee. I need to get to sleep. Busy day tomorrow. I'll miss this place. It was a good home, but your father wants to leave me. And the first step is to make us move out to that island, to make it seem he gave it a try. That's not true, Mom. We all have rules, Rhoda, and your father's main rule is that he can never seem like the bad guy. He loves you, Mom. Irene stood and hugged her daughter. Good night, Rhoda. In the morning, Irene carried her end of log after log from the truck to the boat. These are never going to fit together, she said to her husband, Gary. I'll have to plane them down a bit, he said, tight-lipped. Irene laughed. Thanks, Gary said. He already had that grim, worried look that accompanied all his impossible projects. Why not build a cabin with boards, Irene asked. Why does it have to be a log cabin? But Gary wasn't answering. Suit yourself, she said, but these aren't even logs. None of them is bigger than six inches. It's going to look like a hovel made out of sticks. They were at the upper upper campground on Skelac Lake, the water a pale jade green from glacial runoff, flaky from silt, and because of its depth, never warmed much, even in late summer. The wind across it chill and constant, and the mountains rising from its eastern shore still had pockets of snow. From their tops, Irene had often seen, on clear days, the white volcanic peaks of Mount Redoubt and Mount Iliamna across the Cook Inlet, and in the foreground, the broad pan of the Kenai Peninsula, spongy green and red-purple moss, the stunted trees rimming wetlands and smaller lakes, and the one highway snaking silver and sunlight as a river, mostly public land, their house and their son Mark's house, the only buildings along the shore of Skelac, and even they were tucked back into trees, so the lake still could seem prehistoric, wild, but it wasn't enough to be on the shore. They were moving out now to Caribou Island. Irene lay alone in her tent, a quieter night than usual, no wind, and she tried to imagine what it would be like in winter. 
Not so hard to do, really, after living at the edge of this lake so many years. As she walked out onto it, she'd find fault lines in the snow, a thin dusting, faint ridges raised up where the ice had cracked. No other footsteps, no tracks of any kind. Irene the only figure on a broad pan of white. Early winter, the temperature minus 15. The mountains would be white, the lake and glacier, only the sky a new color, rare winter sun, rare midwinter blue. The sun above the peaks moving sideways, unable to rise any higher. Irene would carry her bow, her footsteps the only sound, the world prehistoric, wind shifting the snow like sand, small dunes and hollows, the water close beneath. Irene imagined herself not properly dressed for the cold for some reason, wearing what she had worn inside the cabin, finished now, a blue sweater, thin down vest, wool pants and boots, a knit cap, white and gray, no gloves. Her hand holding the bow was cold. She walked toward the glacier, toward the mountains, away from the island, walked slowly, then stopped and looked around. Without her footsteps, no sound, no wind, no moving water, no bird, no other human. This bright world, the sound of her heart, the sound of her own breath, the sound of her own blood in her temples, those were all she would hear. If she could make those stop, she could hear the world. The water beneath her was moving, and that must make a sound. A dark current beneath ice, no surface to break, no ripples, but even that must make a sound. Deep water, layers and currents, and when one layer moved over another, something must hear that, some tearing of water against water. And over time, the changes in those currents, the shifts, the lake never the same from moment to moment, all of that must be recorded somehow. Irene could imagine herself continuing on over the thin crust, holding the bow in her left hand, letting the other hand warm in her pocket, continuing over light dunes of snow, pausing in an area of large flakes. The size of fingernails, individual snowflakes, their branches visible, lying at angles, razor thin. They looked ornamental, contrived, too large and individual to be real. She squatted down for a closer look, touched a flake, then wiped her hand across the surface, revealing the black of the lake, the color of ice over the depths, a vacuum of light, and no way to peer into it, the surface clear but so dark as to be essentially opaque. The cold would press in, not dressed for this, not prepared. Her legs and back cold. She'd be shivering soon, the sun so bright and without any warmth. Gary, she said, and she stopped. This big lake, so flat, only the small drifts of snow. She looked at the far shorelines, turned a slow circle, tried to see it all at once, the immensity of it. And then she would walk toward the nearest shoreline, wanting the cover of trees, the distances deceiving, elongating. At the edge of the lake, ruptures and monuments of ice, their peaks covered in snow, mountains of another scale. She stepped over a ridge, a giantess, slick ice beneath her boots, and then rock, large pebbles, the beach into the trees quickly, home of winter birds, spruce grouse and willow ptarmigan, white-tailed ptarmigan. She'd seen small flocks of red pole feed in temperatures colder than this. No trail here. She stepped over deadfall, pushed through bare patches of alder, grown thick, food for ptarmigan, into the taller white trunks of birch, the evergreen Sitka spruce, tall and thin with branches bent at odd angles.
You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.